For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is a best of episode, some of the best compilations of all the stuff that you've heard this past season as we go into launch season two. Now, my word for this week is make the big ask. I was just uh, with a group of people this weekend, and I had an idea and a vision, and when I got around them, I was like, you know, maybe this is too intense, maybe this ask is too big. But I went in and I made the ask that was like the honest ask. It was big. It's about a big project. And they actually responded really favorably to it. And I had to remind myself like not to downplay our best ideas and our biggest ideas because they seem too grand. Like you got to make the big ask. Hey, y'all. It's Brittany Packnett, Miss Packetti on all social media. I cannot believe we've been doing the pod for a whole year. I still remember getting that text message from DeRay saying, do you want to come read the news and talk about it with me? And I was like, uh, maybe. What are we t- What are we doing? What are you talking about? Um, and what developed was really an exciting way, I think, for us to add perspective to a conversation that so often leaves voices like ours out, that so often leaves perspectives um, and values like the ones of the people that we try our best to represent and bring into the conversation out of the conversation. And so I am so thankful to you all for continuing to listen to us. I still kind of can't believe you do, but we're so, so glad you're here. You know, if I think about my favorite memory over the last year, it's actually the celebration of birthdays. It's getting on the phone and surprising Clint with his mom or me actually hearing my brother Barrington's voice, who's busy in his own right. I mean, he works at a large hospital network. He's a really, really talented preacher. But him taking out the time to join our little podcast crew for a few minutes to help me celebrate my birthday is something I'll never forget. And I think it's really important because people see us as working so hard and constantly having conversations that are critically serious and important to the future of our country and our world. And that's true. But I often say that joy is resistance. And it's really, really important for people like us to be showing up as our full selves, which means the moments of happiness and love and joy are real too. And so it was wonderful to experience that with my three podcast brothers uh, and so wonderful to experience that with all of you. So here's your homework for the week, because my news is a new piece in The Atlantic from our friend Van Newkirk that talks about America's changing attitudes toward mass incarceration, in particular, how those attitudes are being changed in rural America. There is absolutely no debate that rural America is home to a majority of conservative voters, and that is a party through which the kind of tough-on-crime politics had 
great appeal for the last few decades. And often when we see the construction of new jails, it is happening in these spaces and can provide employment to these communities. But we now find from a new Vera Institute study, shout out to our friends at the Vera Institute, that 61% of all rural residents actually don't believe that constructing more prisons will reduce crime. And that's compared to just over two thirds of the general population. This is important because often conservative voters are driving attitudes toward how the broader population, how all of America sees mass incarceration and criminal justice. And so the hope is that as voters continue to change their minds on all sides of the aisle, we can actually make some real traction on how we see criminal justice reform happening in this country. So take a look at that article, tweet us about it, talk about it, put it in our Instagram DMs and let us know what you're thinking as you reflect on this all important issue. Thank you all so much for joining us over the last year. I still can't believe it. And we cannot wait to talk to you in season two. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint. And I can't believe we're at the end of season one. Uh, being part of this podcast has been one of the, the joys of my life. It has been a blast. It is such a pleasure every week to get to uh, think through some big ideas and, and try to wrestle with some big problems with some of my dearest friends and, and to share that with all of you. And so uh, it's been great and I, I can't wait for season two. And one of the things that I've also loved about this podcast is that I've had the opportunity to share uh, another part of my life with you all, which is uh, my life as a poet. And and I figured uh, since this is uh, the episode in which we're sort of changing things up and, and doing things a little bit differently, I'll uh, I'll share some poems here as well. And so uh, these are some poems that are in my book, uh, Counting Descent, and it's a suite of poems. And uh, there are five poems. I'll read each each poem um, back to back and, and kind of thinking about the ways in which uh, a lot of my book is thinking about the conversation that black parents have with their children um, and, and what we know is the talk. Uh, and that's a sort of central theme to the way that the book is structured. And uh, part of what I wanted to do as a sort of artistic endeavor was to try to imagine what inanimate or non-human or non-living objects would say to uh, a black child that they were having the the quote-unquote talk with. Um, and so I wrote about a dozen of these, and five of them ended up in the book, and I'll I'll go ahead and read these five poems. What the Ocean Said to the Black Boy you know how to swim, boy? I know you can float. Felt you bobbing along my surface before you even knew you could. They say you just a conflagration of bad intentions, boy. They use me to put you out. Don't want you burning this place down. Again. They see a little too much loverture in you. A little too much Turner. A little too much of what they already had enough of. What you see when you look at me? You know how many of y'all I swallowed? You just a drop of ink on this canvas, boy. They call me blue because they don't understand how the sky worked. They call you black because they don't understand how God worked. What the cicada said to the black boy. I've seen what they make of you. How they render you a multiplicity of mistakes. They have undone me as well. Pulled back my shell and feasted on my flesh. Claimed it was for their survival. And they wonder why I only show my face every 17 years, but you, you're lucky if they let you live that long. I could teach you some things, you know. Have been playing this game since before you knew what breath was. This here is prehistoric. 
Why you think we fly? Why you think we roll in packs? You think these swarms are for the fun of it? I would tell you that you don't roll deep enough. But every time you swarm, they shoot. Get you some wings, son. Get you some wings. What the fire hydrant said to the black boy. We got a tangled history, the two of us. Must be hard to look at me and just see summertime. Just see childhood. Just see something that keep you cool in the heat. They say we both stay posted on corners. They say we both come with warnings for others not to stand too close. But we both mind our own business until people use us for things we were never meant for. Do you know what it means for your existence to be defined by someone else's intentions? A burning home. A burning cross. Putting a boy against the wall so the dogs have an easier time. Of course you know. A prison cell. An empty gun. A mourning mother of a boy who thought sending him to that school across town would mean he'd have an easier time. But when they open us, spilling, until there's nothing left inside, everyone stands around to watch. What the window said to the black boy. When someone breaks me, they call it a crime. They call it property damage. They call it breaking the social contract. When someone breaks you, they call it inevitable. They call it your fault. They call it Wednesday. They say it's you who came cracked, came shattered right out the box. But they don't know that this is just something you do to show how many of you there are. That none of you are the same. That the more shards there are, the more ways there are to refract this light that envelops us each day. What the cathedral said to the black boy. Come inside, child. Rest yourself. It's okay to want to be held. Ain't we all just trying to be some type of sanctuary for someone? For every year we are not destroyed. Do they not remind us what a miracle it is to have lasted this long? Amid this plunder. Amid all this wreckage. Take a breath and call it prayer. Take a step and call it living. What that ocean tell you, child? That they're frightened of you? They fear you because they ain't ready for your type of holy. Close your eyes. Those stained glass shadows. All we got is what we name ourselves. Otherwise, I am just a room. And you are just a body. And we know how wrong that is. And on that note, for your homework, uh, I'd like for everybody to go buy at least one book of poetry um, from a poet you haven't heard. And there's some incredible young black poets who are writing today. Um, and a few recommendations are Eve Ewing uh, with Electric Arches, Hanif Abdurraqib, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, Safia El Hilo, The January Children, Denez Smith, Don't Call Us Dead, Elizabeth Acevedo, The Poet X, uh, Tyree Day, River Hymns. And there are so many more, but those are a few of my, my recent favorites. And those are dear friends of mine. You know, we talk about politics and we talk about the news and we talk about public policy and we talk about social science and all of these different things on the podcast all the time. And those are obviously incredibly important. Those are, are central parts of my own life and my own thinking. But I think it's also really important that we don't forget the importance of the arts and the importance of poetry and the importance of literature and, and what those can add to our lives. And, and I know, you know, in this moment where everybody's reading the news all the time, it can feel like we only are engaging in, in nonfiction. So I hope everybody goes and picks up a book of poetry this week and uh, we'll see you in season two. Hey, this is Sam at Sam Sway on Twitter. And I know this is the last podcast of the season. So I wanted to reflect a little bit about, you know, where we've come and what we've talked about. I think it's been an incredible season. And when I think back, what I'm most proud of and, and what has been sort of the best part for me 
uh, is seeing how far we've come. You know, in the beginning, I was calling in on my cell phone. The reception wasn't very good. You know, if, if you have been listening to some of the early episodes, you may not have heard me fully. You may have missed some things. Uh, and now, you know, not only can you hear me, but we're doing live shows, uh, which has been my favorite part. We're able to hear people's questions and answer them in real time and really come together as a group um, and do more than just present information, but also start building community as well, which is so important. And before I sort of sign off for this season, I wanted to bring one important piece of news to the conversation, and that is news coming out of New York, where the governor, Governor Cuomo, has announced through executive order that he's going to restore uh, voting rights for up to 35,000 people uh, in the state who are currently serving parole. And this is important because it illustrates the power of governors through executive action and also through their power to influence the state legislature to make a real difference in people's lives, to actually move forward legislation that can impact in a substantial way the criminal justice system, that can impact policing, that can impact so many of the issues that we care about. And all too often while we're focused on you know, the presidency, while we're focused on Congress, uh, we neglect to pay attention to our governors. Uh, and in, in some cases, we miss opportunities to hold them more accountable to using their power to do good. Uh, and I think what we're seeing in New York is a governor that, you know, perhaps out of some pressure from the primary campaign is starting to step up and starting to, to use that power in, in a better way. And, and I think when we look at the sort of the map going into November, there are 36 states that will elect governors in November. And so, you know, this is the time now as we go into this primary season to make sure that your governor uh, is doing right, is using their power to actually impact criminal justice and policing and the issues that you care about in a positive way, is actually representing you and your interests. And if they aren't, you know, push them to do more. And if they refuse to do more, uh, then vote for somebody who will. Uh, and now is the time to do that. Now is the time uh, to use your power as a voter to hold them accountable. Uh, and hopefully, come November, we'll have a new crop of governors uh, that will use their power in a better way than we've seen them use before. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next season. My news this week is an update on the killing of Stefan Clark in Sacramento. So Stevante, uh, Stefan's brother, was arrested and booked into the Sacramento County Main Jail for criminal deaths to another person, felony assault, felony vandalism, and abusing the 911 emergency line. I didn't even know that was uh, an arrestable offense. And remember that he's in one of the leaders in the protests in Sacramento because of the killing of his brother. The other update is that the two officers who killed Stefan Clark have actually been placed back on duty, and that they're not being placed on patrol duty because uh, the police department said that's out of concerns for their safety, which is sort of interesting. And I bring this up to just highlight how the police as an institution literally are playing by a different set of rules. That like there's clearly a killing. We saw the footage and they are like back to work. They're not even on administrative leave anymore. And the district attorney has said that it will take her up to a year to even determine if charges should be filed. And like we point this out because a lot of people want to believe that like, oh, the, this is just like a one-off incident. And it's like there's something broken about the system. If a private citizen did anything like this, there is no way that they just be released like this. Or that like it'd be like, oh, we'll just take a couple of years to think about it. And remember in California, the law says that 
any investigation that takes more than a year can't result in discipline. So if they drag this out for a long time, like this actually can be a gateway to making it so they can't be held accountable at all. So I bring it up because don't want to forget these instances of police violence just because they're not in the news every day. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Are you an annoying coworker? Sending emails when everyone else is sleeping? Do they ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should go to Mattress Firm. They have knowledgeable sleep experts that can help you find a better bed like a Tempur-Pedic. It has technology to keep you cool at night, meaning anyone, even people like you, can sleep. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details. Napa! Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. And here is the best of Positive the People. Some of my favorite conversations from the year and some of yours. Thanks so much to everybody who shared their favorite moment on social media. We have Reza Aslan on, the author and commentator, and I didn't know what to expect from the conversation because we haven't really covered faith much on the pod. And I've grappled with this idea of faith and Jesus as a figure historically and a religious figure. And I learned a lot from this conversation with Reza, hearing him talk about Jesus as a tecton or a day laborer, as a poor figure with no social clout whatsoever, without any formal education, who was illiterate and marginalized from a rural community. But this Jesus was also an activist advocating for a complete shift in power, which, as we know, got him killed by the state. Check it out. You should also read Reza's book. And I can't wait to talk to him again to, to just get an update and to sort of push him on some new ideas. The Jesus of history, the man who lived in first century Palestine, was a 
poor, and let me just stop for a moment and zero in on what I mean by poor, because again, I don't think people get what that really means. Jesus, according to the Gospels, was a tecton. Tecton is a Greek word that unfortunately has been translated in English as carpenter. Tecton does not mean carpenter at all. Uh, Carpenter, you know, brings up these images of some kind of, you know, middle class business owner who really hates taxes. That's not what Jesus was. Tecton means day laborer. A tecton was someone who would basically go village to village looking for any kind of building work to do. If you want to know what Jesus did for a living, go to Home Depot and watch the 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 uh, illegal immigrants standing on the street waiting for a truck to come by and take them to a job. That was Jesus. His his a profession was so low on the social ladder in first century Palestine that the Romans actually used the word tecton as a swear word. Okay, let me just say that one more time. Jesus's job was a swear word in, in you know, among the Romans. So we're talking the poorest of the poor. A man who had literally no education, didn't go to school for a day in his life. There's never been a single school that's ever been uncovered in um, the village of Nazareth, who was unquestionably illiterate, like 98% of his fellow Jews were, um, who was a marginalized peasant from the backwoods of Galilee, a country bumpkin, who lived in a village so small that it literally never showed up on a single map uh, of any map of first century Palestine, a village of mud and brick homes. And yet, and yet, using only his charisma, only the power of his teachings, launched a movement, a radical movement on behalf of the poor, the marginalized, basically people like him, a a movement whose fundamental premise was not the equality of all human beings. That is not what Jesus preached. Jesus didn't say that everyone should be the same. Jesus said that the poor and the rich should switch places, that those on the top and those on the bottom should switch places. Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours, but woe to you who are rich because you will receive your deserts. Woe to you who are laughing now because you will mourn. Woe to you who are fed because you will be hungry. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is revolutionary. He is talking about the fundamental reversal of the social order in which the rich and the poor will switch places. There is no, there is nobody that I know of, no activist in America who is making that argument at all. And that argument was such a threat to the most powerful empire the world had ever known that they hunted down this illiterate peasant from the backwoods of Galilee, arrested him, tortured him, and executed him for the crime of treason. 
One of the moments that a lot of people were moved by, including myself, was hearing about the Goucher Prison Education Program, which services Maryland state prisoners by helping them get college educations through the Goucher College in Maryland. I was interested in the program sort of generally by thinking about how do we sort of understand services and programs in prisons differently. But what really moved me was the firsthand stories from students who graduated from the program. And I love getting to know them and like hearing students like... Saquon Merritt, talk about the impact of the the program on the culture within the prison, Director Amy Rose's response to our prison education matters in a world where college education access is a challenge in many communities. And I was sort of blown away by half the prisoners are parents of school-aged children in that subset. And it's a reminder that we have so much work to do to fundamentally change the outcomes and opportunities that people have who've been incarcerated and to work on decarceration efforts. What was the impact that the classes had on the culture in the in the jail or prison? The impact was the impact was positive for the uh, others incarcerated because you had guys actually like, well, where you going at? Like, you know, you're going to college. Like, it was different to see us move, me, Dante, and a couple of other brothers that were kind of like end up developing into, into role models. Were you in class prison. together? Yeah, we was in well, we was in the same same jail, same oh, classes. Really? Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, we was in the same jail, same class at the same time. How big is the class? Um, a class is one class is usually about what 10, 12 guys, maybe. It's the same as the main campus, so it could be anywhere. I mean, it, it could range, but usually between twelve and twenty-five would be a typical Goucher class. Right. So um, the culture for us, you know, because we were leading other things in the prison, uh, different youth challenges programs. Uh, youth challenge program is a program, is a mentor program, kind of for the younger guys coming in prison, trying to get their mindset on something better. So to see what we were doing coming from work, uh, same clothes, going to uh, going to college at night was guys was really uh, were really trying to get in the program. I think Amy can uh, tell you how full her mailbox was. She has a mailbox in prison, Goucher mailbox. I remember it's a, it's a little blue mailbox, was it? The dark blue mailbox. And she constantly had papers in there for people trying to get involved in that program. Because, you know, we come back to the TED. We ain't really, I wasn't, you know, Tante, sometimes we couldn't be worried about football. We had papers to do. So um, on, on that aspect, it, it, it encouraged, as I said, that exposure. When you expose people to other things that can be done, they tend to try to do other things opposed to just being exposed to negative, getting high in prison, uh, fighting or, uh, or just, you know, just going nuts, just running your time. Like Ramika said, the first year is just going crazy. There are people who would say that there are like people outside of jails and prisons who like can't afford to go to college, who like, you know, that, who, who did everything right, who didn't make a mistake. And so why would we be investing money in like a, an education program in a prison for people who like did make a bad decision and it costs, it seemingly costs more than like free college for people not in, in prison. So like, what would your, what would you say to those people? This for anybody. I would say two things. I would to your question, I would say there is a crisis in access to education and particularly in access to quality education and higher education. And we should, and that access to education in prison is one part of that puzzle, but actually the corrections officer who's frustrated because their son can't get a loan, their son also deserves to go to college. The um, folks outside in the neighborhood that I live in, Baltimore City, they deserve to go to college. We actually have this larger crisis that needs addressing. And we think of GPIP as a part of that puzzle and a demonstration project and a part of two things like this, pushing that conversation forward. But it should not be just our students who have access. But in fact, we need to answer that question in the United States. And then I think would say the second part of that is this question of cost. It costs us about 
in Maryland, uh, a conservative estimate about $40,000 a year to incarcerate someone per year. GPEP is costing us less than $6,000 per person per year. Mm. Um, we consistently see in studies that education reduces re- return to prison recidivism by something like 40%. The Bard Prison Initiative, which is Bard College in New York, has had a division in prison for 15 years, and they see in their alums, nationally, our recidivism rate, people return to prison um, at about 60%, 60%, 6-0. Bard's former students the recidivism rate is 4%, mm. and the graduates is 2%. Wow. And we consistently see the higher the education, the lower the recidivism rate. So there's a huge financial argument. And I would add to that, GPEP is overwhelmingly privately funded. We have amazing individual donors, an army of individual donors, uh, um, amazing group of um, foundations that have come together to support this. So 80 75, 80% of our funding is private funding. A smaller portion of it is um, public Pell Grants. Um, so in addition, um, this is private funding that's going to turn this. Um, so that's like a pretty amazing argument for um, if you're just, and that's if you're just interested in the fiscal responsibility. And then we have, do you care about community stability? Do you care about cycles of poverty and incarceration? More than half of the people we incarcerate are parents of school-aged children. Do you want those parents to stay home? Do you think that will make a difference for their kids? We know that college has this huge impact on lifetime earnings and unemployability. Um, what does that mean for an individual? What does that mean for a community like Sandtown, Winchester, where we're, we have, that's the most heavily incarcerated neighborhood in the city? What does it mean, for, mean if um, folks come home and have... Um, good um, living wage jobs that they feel like are meaningful to them? What does it mean if they have an education that they can really engage socially and politically? Um, and what does that mean for their neighbors? And what does that mean for their kids? And what does that mean for, for all of us who, um, who live in Maryland, who are part of these academic communities, who are part of these neighborhood communities? You know, we had some funny moments this year, and I love talking with Tulsi Handler. Remember live on the news a few weeks ago in New York, and Disha Dai reflecting on her time being the Obama social secretary. One of my favorites in one of the interviews that a lot of people loved was my conversation with the actress and my friend Tracy Ellis Ross on how she knew acting was like it for her, how she chooses her work, how she thinks about race. I was really pushed and moved by the way that she sort of defined herself and the way that she processed the industry, the world, and social justice issues. And Blackish is one of my favorite shows, and Tracy is one of my favorite people. What was your first show where you were like, I'm an actress? Like, the first show that you were like, okay, this is like a real... I did an NBC movie of the week. Yeah, called Sins of Silence. I don't think I saw that one. Yeah, you probably didn't. (laughs) You probably didn't. I played um, a rape survivor who was a former track star, um, like um, Olympic track star, um, whose uh, rapist had been someone that she knew. Okay. And he was her coach. And uh, my character had Casey King had not spoken up about it. And then there was another young track athlete um, that was... She was worried uh, she had had the same thing happen, and they came to Casey King to see if she would speak up, and Casey was afraid to, but then she finally did. And that was, I, I think in that moment, um, I was like, all right, I'm acting. There we go. <laughs> I went to Canada. We shot it in Canada, and um, it was not an easy one. And then when I went from that to Lyricist Lounge, I mean, you know, I've honestly worked. Cons- Lyricist Lounge. Don't you remember that? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Me and Most Deaf. I, like, rhymed with Most Deaf. I, I like, there were a couple bars. 
I haven't thought about Lyricist Lounge in a long time. Yeah, I was very serious. I was a rapping character oh, gal. Wow. Do you remember? You're Where right. are all my diggers at? Where are all my diggers at? Who do you? I haven't thought about Lyricist Yeah. Tracy, wow. <laughs> well, how do you, what's the process you go through to choose your, so like from Sins of Silence to Lyricist Lounge, Girlfriends, Blackest, like, well, what, you know, you could, you could be a reality TV star or something. Like, you could do less meaningful things. Hmm. Well, I will say this. I, I was very blessed at the beginning because the truth is that in the beginning of my career, there wasn't a lot of choice involved. It was being chosen. And I've never thought about it this way, but I think that's part of the um, evolution that's happened within my own life as well. Um, moving um, in a, a empowered sense from the idea of waiting to be chosen to being the person who chooses. And I think that's a lot of what I talk you about. preach. But, but it's a lot of what I talk about um, because as women, culturally, we are trained in the, you know, patriarchy steeps us in this idea um, that women are to see themselves through other people's eyes, you know, and as a result, you are, you are waiting to be chosen in so many different ways. And, um, I really love to push up against the status quo and sort of have a curiosity about that and say, but why? And I have to say that is a lot of what I come from in my mom. My mom was never like played into the rules of what was there. And as I've gotten older, I've been able to sort of unpack and get informed about what those cultural norms are that are steeped in racism racism, sexism, patriarchy, like all of those different rape culture, like all of those different things that kind of inform a mindset. So in the beginning of my career, it was very much about, you know, auditioning for whatever was put in front of me. And I did learn a lot that way. I became ungreen and learned how to take the woman that I was in front of my mirror in my bedroom and do that in front of people um, with the freedom and like abandon that I really wanted to. Um, and then as my career progressed after Lyricist Lounge and slowly, I mean, it's only recently that I have been able to make clear choices, but I can tell you what I respond to in material. There's a really simple thing that happens for me when I read something. Uh, if I start saying my lines out loud when I'm reading a script, I know that I have a personal connection or there's something I want to live through. There's a part of me that needs to speak through that character. As an actress, I feel that my job is not to tell responsible stories, but to share humanity. And I believe that there is a humanity and a truth in all kinds of stories, even stories that make me cringe. Now, Jadad is one of the more recent conversations I had. And, you know, I knew nothing about black holes. I'd never, ever met an astrophysicist before. And, and you know, I learned a ton. And, and it was really incredible to be in proximity to that. It made me also remember that we need to cover just more science on the pod, that like that that's a part of the world that I don't know as much about and I need to learn more. And a lot of people love that one as well. This is a real question. Tell me. I was smiling, so I th you might have thought I was joking, but this is real. I trust you. In the you. cartoons, the black holes like suck things into them. Is that real or is that like fake on TV? I just want to, I want to say this one time. Okay. <laughs> oh, yikes. Black holes are not vacuums in space. Okay. Uh, but they people are think that. Like I know. That's why I was, black holes are not vacuums uh, in space. Okay. Uh, they are something that's so massive that not even light can escape. But it's not just like going around, sucking up everything around it. Like gravity has to work and the physical laws have to work. And so, for example, DeRay, okay. if, you, if you replace the sun okay. with a black hole that was exactly the same mass, 
black what hole? What would happen? How does a hole have a mass? Wait, we'll get there. I'm we'll trying to there. understand. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, okay, okay. We'll I'm just, you know, just pretend like try to you keep can. it honest on the pod. I got questions. Here we are. I got an answer. Okay, I'm just okay, trying so to say. pretend like you could. Just, just okay, move I'm with the sun, you. put a black hole there, same mass. Yes. Okay. What would happen to the earth? I don't know. I'm not I'm a vacuum in space. <laughs> I'm a geneticist. I'm a geneticist. Okay. No. Nothing. Nothing. You would not notice any difference for eight minutes. Well, that's <laughs> Okay, eight minutes. Someone knows why this eight minutes, but it's because it's not a vacuum, right? Like the same mat, the, the reason why we orbit around the sun is okay. because of the mass of the earth and the mass of the sun. So if you just replace the same mass as a black hole... That makes... I got that. You're just going to keep going. I mean, now you have other issues yeah, like no sun. <laughs> that's what happens in minute... That's what happens in minute 10. Right. right. You're like, and no like, oh. sun. You're like, and we're done. You know, I wasn't surprised that many people sort of wrote a lot of feedback to us about the child welfare system episode we did with Tracy Field at the Casey Foundation. I got a lot of comments that we needed to push differently, that we can push deeper, that this was a good intro, but the intro requires like sort of something more. And and I really appreciated that. I learned a lot about foster care and like I just didn't know much about it, which is why I wanted to do the episode in it. There's some highlights around what good systems look like about recruitment and the foster care system. And it made me remember that there are layers of things that we just aren't dealing with in the public conversation that we need to. Can you explain the, the foster care system or like the child welfare system as somebody who works with agencies a, across the country? Uh, you know, I, I know this is an important issue that isn't talked about, but I don't like I don't know more than that. I, I know I'm like, I care. I think it should be better. I've only heard that the system can be better. I don't actually know like how many kids are in child welfare systems across the country. Like what I don't I don't I don't have an understanding of the landscape. Can you help paint that picture? Sure. There's um, about 7.2 million kids who are subject to an investigation or to a report of abuse and neglect. And of that, about 3.4 million children are either investigated or, or are sent to this alternative track where they are offered services within the family. And of them, about 300,000 kids end up going into foster care in a given year. So we're talking and at any given time, because kids stay in care longer than a year in some instances, there's over 400,000 kids in foster care um, at any given time. And that number is, has, was going down for a, a long time at the beginning of the century, but has now started to climb back up again. And, and what is working in foster care and what's not working? What's working is there are some federal laws that require that the first option when a child needs to be placed into foster care is that a relative be used to care for the child. And that's a law? That's in law, yeah. That's the first option. So that's the preferred option. And when relatives are used as the foster care provider, it's the best option for kids. Because they're staying with family, they know family, they provide all the cultural relevant um, expertise and uh, similarity that a child needs and wants to feel comfortable and familiar. That's the best option. Secondary, they would go into a foster family. That would be someone who has been uh, um, approved by the child welfare system. So they'd be within a foster family who would be uh, supposed to be treating them like a child, like their own child. 
The last option is a residential or a group program. And those programs should be used only for therapeutic purposes when the child has a real uh, mental health or behavioral problem, and then only for a very short time. What goes wrong in foster care is when we don't uh, encourage or support our relative caregivers or when we don't uh, develop enough foster families so that by default, we end up sending far too many kids to institutions or to group homes. And those are not appropriate long-term placements for children. We did a bonus episode after the white supremacists marched in Charlottesville at UVA, and we talked to Wes and Devin, two black student leaders at UVA, and and they really helped us all think about what was happening there from a student perspective in a way that I know I just didn't understand until I talked to them. So it's no surprise they made it to the best of episode. And here's Devon talking about how we got here, including what he describes as white insecurity and what it was like on the ground when the violence broke out. And this conversation was just like another reminder of the inspiring work done by young people across the country. Devin, can you talk about what was it like for you to be there? How did we get here? Okay, yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll go into it. So the question I'm going to go to first is how did we get here? That's an extremely important question, and it's a different it's a question that changes where you are. How did Charlottesville get here? Well, racial tension has been a, long, a much too long-lived aspect of life here. Um, the, U, the university, UVA, has a very tumultuous history with race um, in, in the contemporary sense, you know, with Martise, with the movements um, and, and the protests that resulted from his beating on the corner to low student enrollment for black people. There's less than a thousand, about a thousand, I think, black people in a, a school of 26,000, you know. Um, but how did we get here? This summer, I think, is the culmination of a lot of white insecurity. People have felt that the last eight years of progressivism, of a change in the language of how we talk about race and gender, they're, they're sickened by it and they feel like their way of life has been threatened. And now they want to come outside because they feel like they can, I think, with this new administration in the White House. And they want to make, they want to normalize white supremacy and they want to feel good about being white again and they want to feel safe in, with their position in the world. Um, and I think that's what brought them out. What is it like to be on the ground? It is difficult. I'm one of those people who can't help but like process the abstract, even in the moment. So, you know, you're at the statue and you see the, 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 the horde of white men with torches approaching you. And you're like, man, am I doing this right? Like, is this how, you know, Dr. King did it? Is this how X did it? Is this how it's supposed to go? Um, but you got to be present too, right? And you have to think about your safety and there's so many considerations and it's all happening so fast. I think I was proud in the moment. I was like, I'm so glad I'm here. Like, this is scary, but this is really, this is clearly where the work needs to be done. Now, I ended up connecting with Brene through the beauty of Twitter. And then we had this conversation at Riverside Church in Harlem about joy, allyship, racism, and courage. And we, we played that conversation on the pod this past March. And I keep thinking about this conversation. I'm excited to share that we'll be continuing it as a part of the season two premiere next week. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit deeper and just like round out some of the things that we started in that conversation at Riverside. So hope you'll like it and hope that this will be a way for us to continue the work. Like, I'm trying to understand what you said at the beginning, this idea that joy is hard. 
Like, what does that mean, especially when we think about justice work and, and race? It's so funny that you bring up that quote, because I'm, like, obsessed with that quote right now. See? We're... I know we're in a Vulcan mind meld. Um, <laughs> I'm obsessed with it because I've been thinking a lot about the Me Too movement. And, I, and, and also, I mean, race, all of these things that we're fighting for, I think, across multiple oppressions, like, that's how I feel about shame. I think shame is a tool of oppression. It's not going to be the tool we bring. Use to, like, if you say the master's tool will not dismantle the master's house, shame, humiliation, and belittling are the tools of oppression. They will not be the tools of social justice. Like, I won't, I mean, I won't participate in them because they've already taken enough from me. And to be on the receiving end of shame is hard enough but to be a perpetrator of shame also takes something from your soul. So I won't use that as a social justice tool. I think the joy piece is joy is super vulnerable. Is there always an easy test I do? How many parents in the audience? How many of you have ever stood over your child while he or she is sleeping and thought, I love you like I didn't know was possible? And then in that moment, dress rehearse something tragic happening to your child. It's about 95% of parents. How many of you have ever had like a really great thing happen to you? And then in the moment of the bliss and happiness, you start thinking about what horrible thing's going to happen now because you're in a joyful place. So why do people do that? People do all that because joy is the most vulnerable of all human emotions. Mm-hmm. We're so afraid that if we lean into it, and this is going to go to a terrible place around activism, so stay with me, but okay. if we lean into it, we're so afraid that it'll get pulled out from underneath our feet and we'll get sucker punched by pain. So that when something joy happens, we start dress rehearsing tragedy and waiting for disaster. Hmm. And so it's hard. And the only thing that the men and women we've studied, and we just passed 200,000 pieces of data, the only thing men and women who we've studied share in common that really have the capacity to lean fully into joy are people who actively practice gratitude. Interesting. So hard. So then the question becomes this, and this is, I mean, I've had this question with, I did some work with all the female Nobel laureates, and there's a real... No small thing. Well, it it was because they worked out of University of Houston, where we were, and so it was amazing. Um, And there was a really divided group around... There's no place for joy and gratitude and activism. Hmm. Activism that's the most effective is fueled by rage and anger. And then there are other people who believe that's not sustainable. I can't do that. I agree with that. And so I think there is a question that I struggle with myself. Like how, if I'm going to go on spring break with my kids and my husband, how do I stand there on the beach and think, this is so beautiful and I'm so grateful for this moment when there are Syrian children dying? How do I sit down at a meal and have something when I think people are not eating right now. And so there's a question, I think, where I see activists after activists after activists who become the theoretical activists burn out because they allow themselves no joy in their lives, no gratitude, no, this was a small win, let's celebrate it. Because the thinking is, we celebrate this small win, people will think we're done. You know, I, people have talked about self-care for the, the last three years and it never, like I would, you know, I participate in the conversation, but it never really, I never got it until 
I heard somebody say you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. And I got it. I was like, I get it, right? That like we have to show up as more than our pain, that like blackness is about more than pain, that our joy has actually been one of our biggest strengths. So I agree with you about that there's some people whose identity is also rooted in the battle, right? That like yeah. without the yeah. perpetual battle, yeah. they actually don't know. So when the battle goes away and joy might even come up, they're like unmoored. Because I think you're right that like we can't sustain, rage is not sustainable, right? That like rage alone, you burn out, you get like tired. It's a great catalyst, but I think it's a sucky life companion. I like that. Well, that's it. It's a wrap to season one. Thanks for listening to Pot to the People, and we are coming back with season two. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people.